Hi, I'm Gigi, and this is Driven Minds, a Type 7 podcast. In this series, we talk to our cultural heroes to learn how they navigate through challenging periods of their lives. By sharing our stories, we hear ourselves and others, our thoughts, our worries, our insecurities, and only then do we realize that we are never as alone as we think we are. So I love movies with subtitles, and I can hear you rolling your eyes, but I am that person, and I am not sorry about it. I remember when I first started watching Jean-Luc Godard films when I was a teenager, and I was so sucked into his world and would scour Tumblr for those romantic, existential Anna Karina and Jean Belmondo quotes. Not sure about you, but there's something about beautiful people going through shit that just hits me in the heart every single time. All of it, the intensity, the feelings, the sexiness, and our guest today has captured the whole shebang in her art throughout the past six years. And her art keeps capturing people. It's gone viral more times than I can count, and trust me, I tried. So I first discovered Sarah Baba the way a lot of us did. It was when a friend of mine reposted one of her photos on her Instagram. It was this beautiful girl lying back on a bed, smoking a cigarette in one hand, a glass of red wine in the other, and the subtitle read, at what point does loving someone become self-sabotage? Just like a still from an old movie. And who can't relate to a proper dose of self-sabotage? This was a couple years back, and that image was part of a series called For Arabella. I was immediately hooked, and I've been following Sarah and her work ever since. If you look up Sarah's work on Instagram, you'll see that while each image does work individually, put them together and you'll see they form narratives with clear storylines, just like a movie. They explore love, body image, shame, anxiety, the conflict between her Palestinian heritage and her upbringing in Australia, and of course, my favorite subject, sex. In our conversation, Sarah and I got pretty deep pretty fast, so get ready to jump right in. Here it is, my conversation with Sarah Baba. Is everyone in LA as obsessed with your accent as I am? <laughs> um, it's weird because a lot of people uh, don't notice it. And then it takes them like a good 10 minutes into conversation. And then they'll be like, wait, do you have an accent? <laughs> like, But I guess maybe over um, over the phone or you know, microphone or whatever, you could probably pick it up a little better, but yeah. yeah. How, how was it moving from Australia to LA? I mean, emotionally, all the things. Uh, how was it? I guess it was, I wasn't even scared. I just kind of was like, okay, I'm doing this. And without even like questioning it, I was like, I just packed up my life pretty quickly in Melbourne. And then uh, I, I don't know. I kind of just jumped on the plane and I was here, but obviously that took a lot of work, like getting a visa and, and like saving up enough funds in case I don't pick up work for the first few months I'm there and, you know, building clients in Australia. So I had like consistent income. So there were so many like things around it, but in terms of emotional, it was so just felt like I was like, no, I have to do this. I know I'm supposed to be over there. I don't know why. I don't really care to know why. I just have to trust this feeling. So it was completely intuitive then, your, your jump. Yeah, I want to say most of my decisions are. Only like in the past two years, I've been more logical about everything. But 
before that I was like, nope, we're doing it. I've seen it. It's happening. We're going, we're doing it. Like literally just like always just believing that whatever this like little tingly feeling inside my gut is, is like the universe just being like, go child, go and be free, <laughs> you know? Totally. One thing I love about your work is how you address sex and female pleasure so unapologetically, especially in the subtitles. And I just want to read two of my faves. Go on. (laughs) I had to pleasure myself twice today just to wake up. I definitely relate to that. And if you're going to be a fuckboy, at least be good at fucking. (laughs) Preach. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's crazy that in 2021, there's still a kind of radicalism to a woman openly voicing her sexual desires because it's still so stigmatized. Yeah. I'm curious if there was an image or a series that you did think twice about publishing or were you just like, fuck it? No, I mean, the my art is my safe space. And my, you know, the reason why I create in the execution that I do is because it, it, it's giving me a voice. And my biggest thing was Mm. not having a voice growing up. No one could hear me cry and no one could, I felt like I was invisible and no one could feel my pain. And so I created a space where I could just express myself and give myself a voice and, and put it out into the world. And so I never like question it. The only times I question it is if the talent I like, no, I can't agree to that. You can't, you can't put that on my work. It's going to fuck up my career or whatever. And that's happened so many times. And really? so, mm-hmm. and so I've had to just like save it for another day, you know? And even I had one, um, from, I wouldn't say for what series, but I'd had it in my, my notes for a while. That's where I write all my subtitles. Cause they happen like on the fly. And it was, it was no one can fuck me. Like I can. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And that was me like processing that the guy I was dating was just like boring as hell and like, (laughs) and young and just like couldn't do it. And, you know, I was finding, I was like, I was, I was getting, I was just like having a way better time and it was just me. And that was such (laughs) a good decider to walk away from it because, you know, what's more important than your pleasure? (laughs) Totally. And so that's when I was like, oh, I guess right now no one can fuck me better than I can. Um, yeah, but I couldn't include that in my series. It got, it kept getting pushed back. So, you know, everyone has the right to push back on something like that. Like we all liberate ourselves very differently. And of course, some prefer to be more private. I'm still super private, but I feel like saying things like this is like, it's like fun and empowering and hilarious, but other people, other women won't see it that way. And that's absolutely okay as well. And um, if I get pushed back, I'm like, that's cool. We won't include it. Whatever. I'll find another place for it. That makes sense, you know? Another um, thing that I thought of when you were saying no one can fuck me like I can, it really is amazing that as we get older, I feel like we want more because we realize what we deserve more than when we're young. So that's kind of where I'm at right now. I feel like if I'm with someone, yes, they have to fuck me better than I can. And you end (laughs) up enjoying and loving your alone time so much that you get more hesitant to let other people in. And that's kind of where I am. I'm curious where you are. Because so much of your work's about self-love. Absolutely. And it's so, 
it's so necessary. I think like something we're not taught is getting familiar with our bodies before other people get familiar with them. And I think, yeah, I think, um, (laughs) you know, I, I, I was raised in a home where like sex was meant for husband and wife and same we weren't even allowed to consider it it wasn't an option for us it we were like completely shamed if we ever like even like kissed a guy or whatever and so like I didn't have the birds and the bees talk I knew nothing about my body I wasn't allowed to wear tampons like because like anything to do with like your vagina was out of bounds for you even though it's yours (laughs) um and obviously that's super conflicting for me because like behind closed doors, I, from such a young age, I was being, I was being sexualized by, you know, older men, um, from the ages of four to like 12. And so I just like, couldn't understand why my mom was saying like, sex is for a husband and wife. You can't touch your vagina. You can't wear tampons. You can't even put your hands in your pants to keep your hands warm (laughs) when these things were happening to me, but she wasn't aware obviously. And And so I had a really like complex, conflicted view around sex. And so like, um, now more than ever, like through my healing process, I was just like, well, fuck, like I have to own my body. How can I, Mm -hmm. how can I tell myself and tell the world, like, this is mine and you can't touch it. You can't get close to it unless like. Unless I say so, <laughs> unless yeah. it's consensual, and and yeah, this was this is definitely my way of like claiming my power back. Um, and I think like just back to what we were saying, we have to we have to know our bodies before we let other people in. That's like it's so important, and that's something I will definitely be teaching my young nieces, <laughs> and <laughs> if I ever decide to have kids, like yeah that if they've got to like, I want them to be familiar. I want them to know that they can, you know, get to know their body and not feel like guilt or shame around it. I'm curious when you did start taking these steps that you told were wrong, right? Like touching yourself when that wasn't allowed, like was that first experience liberating in some way? It, it's been a process even getting to know my body. And I was such a late bloomer and mm-hmm. I didn't even know I could orgasm until it happened by accident when I was studying and there was like a pillow in between my legs, you know? Yeah, totally, (laughs) totally. Everyone kept talking about it. I'm in college at this point. And I was like, oh, this is what it means, (laughs) you know? (laughs) This is why everyone's doing that. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And then even then, it still took me years to like even let someone in. And then I finally did. And I didn't, I want to say I didn't really like get to know my body till my like mid to late I'm like I'm still in my late I'm in my late 20s now but like only a few Mm -hmm. years ago but before that I didn't know how to ask for what I wanted because I literally didn't know what I wanted I mean coupled with not knowing what you want which I feel no one really can especially when we're in our 20s there is this gender role conformity as well that plays out, especially in a heterosexual relationship, right? Like we're conditioned to be satisfied with sex being over when the guy comes. 
And I didn't start questioning that until I was in my mid-20s. And I was like, wait, like, why is this entire thing about him? Like, why am I a prop for his pleasure? This makes no goddamn sense. And there was kind of a come to Jesus that I had when I remember the first time I asked and advocated for my pleasure. And that was like a moment. And it was shameful until, I mean, luckily the guy was somewhat emotionally intelligent and ended up being okay. But... That was that was a thing. So I can't imagine your experience where not only are you told at home that sex is bad, but also coupled with fucking American and Western gender role norms. That must have been a thing. Yeah. I mean, it was all it was so everything was so confusing. Um, <laughs> and I, I had to figure it all out on my own because like I couldn't find truth in what I was being taught at home and I couldn't connect with what was being taught in the media and entertainment. So, yeah. And I think collectively, like as women, we're all kind of figuring that out together. And, you know, there's a lot of like, you know, sex activists, like body positivity activists. And it feels like we've come out of nowhere in the past, like five years. And we're just like, this yeah. is it. This is how it's going to be from now on. <laughs> Women's pleasure first. Let's go. And, <laughs> and it's, it's changing things, but, um, we still have a lot of a long way to go. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for sure. But then I also, you know, I find your work really inspiring because what I see is a woman that has liberated herself from all this bullshit, you know, and isn't afraid to voice her needs and advocate for herself. So, I mean, you must have learned to put your own needs first, assuming your work is an extension of yourself, right? Yeah, it absolutely is an extension of myself. And yeah, I, it's almost like people get to see my growth, like, publicly because I'm you know every time I release a series it it feels elevated um to my elevation as like an individual and mm-hmm. and like when you compare my works from like 2015 to now there's just I've become more I want to say I'm more eloquent and more assertive in the way that I like uh display my thoughts and that that's a reflection of my own like personal work as well and like mm-hmm. um and just like giving myself more and more permission to just exist as I am and mm-hmm. be as vulnerable and open and transparent within myself. So I'm able to tell, you know, my, my story and show my, my journey like as accurately as possible. Has it always been easy for you to be so open? Um, no, no, I definitely wasn't, uh, until I started therapy. I think, mm. um, yeah. It wasn't until I started diving into myself because how could you be open if you had no idea where you stood in life? If, you know, <laughs> I was so numbed for, I want to say like years for a, a good portion of my early twenties. And, and like, I, I, I didn't have self-awareness the way I should have. Like even I felt so removed from this earth. Like I felt so disconnected and. I wasn't opening myself up to myself. How could I open myself up to the rest of the world, you know? Mm-hmm. It, and so it wasn't until I started doing a lot of introspective work and and therapy and going through that journey that I realized like the power to healing is vulnerability and emotional mm-hmm. transparency. Like you have to be open. You have to stay so fucking open to be self-aware. I think openness and self-awareness come hand in hand. 
Yeah, I feel like these words like self-love and vulnerability, they've become so esoteric and so used. And I'm so pissed because that is truly the key to everything. Like vulnerability and sharing your story. I mean, that's the war cry of this podcast is by sharing our stories, we feel more free to own them. Yeah, I think we all just want to have a voice in this world. And we're, you know, based on your experiences, like for me, I was heavily conditioned to sit down and shut the fuck up and it wasn't working for me. Mm-hmm. And so I, I found a way to not do that. And it's, and I feel like this healing journey has just been so incredible. Um, and I feel more present than I ever have. And yes, I still have serious mental health issues, but it feels easier to deal with because I'm a hundred percent aware of what's going on inside of me now. I want to ask you about Fool Me Twice. Yes. (laughs) Your newest series. And it's about the complex and often torturous dynamic, to be honest, between an anxious partner and an avoidant one. And I'm definitely the anxious partner, but I've also been told that I'm the avoidant one. So (laughs) leave that that there. I'm curious where you fit in in this dynamic. Oh, I am 100% anxious. Um, in case this podcast didn't give it away already, I am so (laughs) fucking anxious, especially when I'm in a toxic relationship and they've got me in the palm of their hands and I feel like I've lost control because I've allowed myself to lose myself in the relationship. Mm. And, um, yeah, my anxiety is definitely activated when I feel like my partner is withdrawing and it's in those Mm. spaces that I do my best writing because my protest, essentially my protest behavior is, you know, coming up with these like lines that I want to say to them or the things that I've actually said to them. And like, I, I, instead of saying it to them, I'll just like write it all in my notes because I'm so aware that I'm protesting and like, that's not on them. That's on me. That's my own projection of my own anxiety. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, yeah, that's when I, that's when I do my best work, (laughs) just allowing my anxious protest behavior to unleash yeah oh god but uh, that must be like masochistic to an extent like to access this level of creativity you have to be in this like avoided relationship it's like oh god when does the circus end yeah it definitely feels like it's um self-sabotaging it's almost like everyone kept saying to me it's like you do it just to like fuck it up (laughs) so you can create art and like my my old event my event (laughs) producer used to say like (laughs) Cause like she, we, we would do like my solo exhibitions together. And like, obviously if I'm doing shows, that means I've had my heart broken. <laughs> she's like, she's like, um, oh she would God. see like all the idiots I'm dating and she's like, yeah, date them. Like <laughs> that's going to be more money for me. Like, <laughs> That's so funny, like encouraging toxic relationships for them. No, but like obviously jokingly, she's joking, but it's just like, it's hilarious. Like, um, I'll just, I'll like text her and be like, oh, we're not seeing each other anymore. And she's just like, instead of just being like, oh, I'm so sorry. She's like, ha 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 But that's a good friend. Cause like, she's aware of my habits, like my bad habits. Cause I'm, I, I I guess I used to be really toxic as well. Um, But because I wasn't aware of like, my behavior and my my anxious attachment style and the patterns that I had around that like Mm -hmm. I kept attracting avoidance and then demanding their time instead of respecting their needs and vice versa so like 
there's been so much learning around that, but I definitely think it's really, I wish I learned about my attachment style way sooner than I did because I feel like it would have saved me a lot of heartbreak, but obviously that mm-hmm. heartbreak was necessary so I could create art. <laughs> there you go. Only silver linings. Only silver linings. Are you someone that gets attached easily and like falls into this obsessive love tunnel where you with love blinders on and you only see and think of the person? I definitely used to be, but I always like, it's funny because like I would take my time getting to know people and then, but they, and then they would pursue me really fucking heavily. And so I had no choice but to like... (laughs) Give, like suddenly there'd be a switch and then I was just like well yeah they made me feel so safe to just like depend on them and be like cool like we're in this thing and then the second I start showing affection they start to withdraw and so I always God, like when I when I was younger I used to feel so played all the time but that's because I didn't recognize the red flags I didn't even know what they looked like I had mm-hmm. no idea around it like I had to date so many idiots to finally see patterns in people and what works for me and what doesn't and like you know it's just everything's just like you're constantly learning um and you're constantly changing so things that once worked for you won't work for you anymore and Mm -hmm. you you know you decide to like just fucking walk away from anything that's going to give you any kind of like headache yeah so much easier said than done though I mean especially the red flags I feel like I'm the flags like blow in my face as recently as last week. Oh shit. <laughs> yeah, seriously. And I'm just like, no, you know, this one's different. And it's like, no, fucking pay attention. You've been here before, you know? But then yeah. I feel like when you tap into yourself, you realize, all right, what am I doing? Yeah. Pay attention to the flag. Yeah. I mean, it's so, you just have to be so cautious as well. But like something that I learned this year alone was, um, mm-hmm. Cause I figured out like what my needs are in, in intimate situations. Like I, because I have this like anxiety and I have this anxious attachment style, like I, mm-hmm. I really do. And I used to deny this so much because I wanted to be avoidant so bad, I guess, because mm-hmm. I was dating avoidant. So I wanted to be like them. So I could be like, fuck you. you I don't need game. you. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it wasn't working for me. I was always getting like so fucking stomped on and. I always tried to play down my feelings just so I could Same. like be on their level. And I'm just like, nah, that's, that's literally not who I am. Like mm-hmm. I am someone who needs, like, if I fuck with you, if I'm fucking you, if I like you and we're spending all this time together, like I need consistency. I need stability. I need to feel like I can depend on you in a healthy way. I can mm-hmm. rely on you to be there for me and to check in. And like, that the, the the weirdness is like society sees that as clingy and needy and totally. they, they mistake it for codependency or whatever, but it's fucking not like the baseline should be, you should be in healthy, a healthy relationship is feeling respected, safe and supported. Like it's not that fucking hard. <laughs> and, so simple. And so like, I think it comes down to just like, when you're dating, just being able to like lay that out from the start. and and date a lot of guys or girls or whatever and like and see what and see what works for you and what works for them and and eventually like one will stay and if you can be like this is what I need from the start is this something that you're into then like that's gonna very quickly like show you who's gonna be good for you or not 
Totally. But I think this narrative of the chill girl has fucked everyone up. You know, you just want a girl who like is a size zero, but also eats pizza and is like down to smoke weed and like, you know, drinks beer on football fucking Sundays. And that person doesn't exist. And you do feel yourself kind of not owning your own needs and advocating for yourself because you want to be this chill girl that is perpetuated, you know? Yeah, it's it's wild, honestly. And it is. It's, again, it's all like society conditioning us to believe that we'll only be accepted if we're like this. And yeah. men oh, who have like any gender will, depending on like where you, where you fit into this like narrative yeah. is like, they will perceive it how the rest of us were conditioned. Like if you're trying to be this chill girl, then like they will, they will see you as this chill girl and think like, oh, this is, this is hot, you know? And anytime you like yeah. start to crack in this like facade that you've created, like starts to diminish and they start to see that, oh, you actually need, you need closeness. You need me to text you every day. Like, they're like well, fuck, this is too much work. Mm-hmm. I thought you were the chill mm-hmm. girl. <laughs> and it's just like, well, let's just stop being the chill girl and let's just show yeah. them who we really are from the start. Like, it's not, it isn't that hard. Like, we just got to like surrender to who we are and stop trying to be someone for some fucking person who's not going to appreciate it, you know? I want to go back to Sex and Takeout. From my understanding, that was the first series that was a viral success, right? Yeah, 100%. <laughs> For any of our listeners who has not seen this work of Sarah's, she's created this, I have it on my screen, she's created this phantasmagoria of nudity and fast food where naked people are indulging in like burgers and pizza in their living room and in their beds and... <laughs> I found that series really powerful and that, I don't know how to explain it, but there's this, there's this aspirational feeling to the freedom of the people in these images, just indulging in junk food and burgers and pizza. And like, I don't know if I'll ever be suns out, bums out, like throwing back slices. And I could totally be projecting my own shit here, but having had body issues myself, I'm curious, did you have any issues making the piece or was there anything that came up for you? With with any kind of eating disorder, like if you have body dysmorphia, we're going to have waves where we feel super fucking powerful and empowered and so in our body and loving it. And then there'll be like huge slumps where we feel like we're not good enough and, you know, mm-hmm. we don't look and feel sexy and we feel like we might have like, lost too much weight or gained too much weight or it really just depends on the individual right but I was creating these pieces to either because I was feeling empowered or I wanted to aspire to it again you know and so it was always in my mind like this was all always about healing and and really embracing like the ups and downs of recovery and knowing that Mm -hmm. it's not about being recovered and being healed it's just about the journey and being aware of the ebbs and flows that come with any kind of recovery. And it isn't linear. It's, it's always going to be up and down, but as long as you're doing the work, then I feel like Mm -hmm. that's all that matters. (laughs) How did you start doing the work and where were you at before you started? Uh, I started, well, it's, it's weird because there was like, I feel like my um, ED manifested in different ways over the years. Like I, I was 
severely anorexic through middle school. Um, and then when people started to notice, especially my, my parent, like, you know, I grew up, I grew up Palestinian, our family, our culture is all about food and, you know, we, we, it's our love language. Like my mom would cook spreads for us basically every single day. <laughs> um, so I felt, I felt really conflicted because like I was watching the OC and Misha Barton looked the way she did. And I'm this like brown short woman who looks nothing like her. But I figured like, oh, one thing I can control is like my weight. So I'm going to try. And so I was like being so whitewashed and conditioned to like essentially like transform my body to appear like her as this white woman. But then at home, I'm being like force fed like so many like food. And if I wasn't eating, it was like problematic. And, and I just like, it, the, the, my relationship with food was constantly changing. And so, you know, I, I struggled with, I want to say anorexia for, from like grade eight to 10. Um, and I kind of got forced out of it because I was getting severely bullied at school and like people were like, Oh, that's the bulimic chick, like getting the eating disorder wrong. And like, it's awful. Yeah. And yeah. So I was just like, <laughs> I'm fucking anorexic. <laughs> No, I'm kidding. It doesn't even matter. But, um, but get it right, you know. If you're gonna if you're gonna mock me, get it right. Yeah, but all the kids at school essentially um, they turned their back on me because I was like, apparently in my, my 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 mindset, I was turning other girls like anorexic simply by talking about my own disorders, and it was just like it was really fucked up, and I didn't have much self awareness back then, and. Who does? Um, yeah, I know you're a fucking child still, like a teenager. You've got so many hormones. Like, um, but then I guess, uh, in grade 10, I started just like skipping. Like I really became addicted to exercise. And then there was a period where I was taking like excessive amounts of laxatives and then same. And yeah, so fucked, honestly. So fucked. I think I, so I liked that as an adult that like, turned into IBS like I did something to my bowels I fucked mine up too I totally did too I was like I never used to be like this why am I so sensitive to food it's like oh because I was literally ripping the lining of my stomach with a city Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah. um but yeah and then yeah I just like became an exercise junkie and then by 2016 I was severely bulimic again and it was just like I was like what the fuck am I doing (laughs) and it just I I started there was a point in I want to say in October 2016 where I kind of took myself away I went to the desert for 10 days um to deal with all my shit to actually just pause turn off my phone and be like what is going on and Mm. um in that time like I was attacked by bed bugs while I was alone and it triggered my trauma brain. And I started having like visions of like, or flashbacks of like my childhood. And then, um, and yeah, I just, there was just like so much anxiety. Like uh, this is a period time period where I was also like trying to come off Xanax, but I was so, so dependent on them at this point that I experienced like heavy, heavy withdrawals. And, and so I, yeah, I kind of tried to do cold turkey, but I realized I couldn't. So I had to ease off things really so hard. slowly. Yeah. But the last time I ever purged was like on this trip and I did it and I was like, this is the last time because I like, and, and I hadn't, I haven't done it since. Um, and congrats. That's incredible. Thank you. Um, 
And yeah, it, I guess, like my, the start of my healing really started at this trip because I, I had to decide if I wanted to live essentially, because I didn't, I didn't feel connected to anyone. I didn't feel connected to myself. Um, I just felt very numb and very anxious and very, I was very scared as well. And, and so when I got back from that trip, like everything changed. I moved out of the house that I was in. I started seeing a therapist twice a week. I started building a routine, which like integrated just like, you know, movement, like walking, exercise, like, you know, healthy diet. I went vegan. I went sober um, from alcohol and sober from hard drugs. Um, I integrated mushroom into my therapy um, as well. Dying to do that. Which really, really helped. I microdosed for a period of time in 2017. And I think that was like really incredible to like, my healing and processing like my traumas and the things that happened to me that I'd repressed so badly because I, I would go in so intentionally and be like, I'm taking this to give, to create a safe space within my brain to allow myself to see the things that I have been squishing. <laughs> right. Right. Like really, really deeply hiding. And it was incredible. <laughs> it was incredible. Was this just you in a desert or was it a program or was it? It was just me. I just wanted, I needed to be alone. Um, I needed to just remove myself from the environments I was in. And I, I didn't really have community. I didn't have community at all. Um, I didn't in have LA. in LA. I didn't have people who made me feel safe. Um, maybe one, there's actually one or two friends, but it wasn't what I was used to. I, I was used to being surrounded by people. Like I grew up in a household where my shoulder, my parents were literally like always there. And my cousins were like one, one door away from me. I had mm. so many friends and I come to the city and it just feels so isolating. And I couldn't, I couldn't feel safe because I didn't have like a community, a stability in terms of community. And so I was just like, well, I'm just going to go be alone and find stability. And that's mm-hmm. what I did. It was the only thing I could do in that time. Yeah, I lived in LA for two years, actually. And I think it was probably the loneliest two years of my life. Yeah. For a city that's so densely populated, it is so isolating. The freeways and all the empty space, it's just an exercise in isolation. Yeah. And during these two years is when I started smoking weed and yeah. <laughs> drinking wine all the time. And eventually I had to leave in order to reclaim myself in my life. So I moved back to New York. Yeah. I think uh, a big part of my existence at this point was dealing with everything alone and even though even when I was in Australia even when I was with my family like the things that I was experiencing like no one no one knew about and so it was always like I was I was always secretly suffering and Mm. I I coped with that on my by myself up until up until 2016 where I started seeing a therapist I did everything on my own and that was what I felt comfortable with that's what I what I knew, like I survived everything alone up until this point. Like I need to just like keep doing it. I thought that's how I was going to heal. When in actual fact, it wasn't until I started inviting community in after grounding Mm -hmm. myself in, in LA that like my, my real healing like started to happen because I had people to mirror my growth of. 
And like, mm-hmm. I was able to evolve by like allowing people to see, see who I am and not just like me seeing who I am. If that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. So I guess for those two years before you went to the desert, was it a lot of self-medicating and kind of just like pushing through? Like, yeah. <laughs> I was I was very 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 numb. Um I so I left my I left my family home from Perth. I moved to Melbourne in 2012 or 13. I have to remember the day. I think it was 2012. Um and yeah, after that I was kind of like I was I, I, in my head I was free for the first time. I didn't have like any like restrictions on me. I could just like figure out who I was, but the more time I spent figuring out who I was, I feel like there was a huge sense of darkness and fear still. And Mm. like, I couldn't escape it. And so, um, and my anxiety, like I had, I I've always had it, but it got really bad when I lived in Melbourne and my doctors were just like, Oh, here, I have Xanax. And I was like, sick. Same. <laughs> and, then, Same. and then, like, I, I mean, it's crazy because it happened. That's like, they, they, they think that fixes everything, but it doesn't fix anything. It just <laughs> makes you avoid a band-aid. It. Yeah. It's a band-aid. And anyway, it, in my head is like this, you know, super young adult who's free for the first time, who hates her anxiety. Um, it just made sense mm. to keep taking them. I was like, well, this feels, this was nice. Like when you're on it, this was so good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, yeah like, like... and then like when I would run out, I'd realize like, oh, how much I needed it. And so I managed to like convince so many different doctors to give me so many. <laughs> and like, cause they, in Australia. I'm sure it was they, easy, by the way. <laughs> it, it, it was for a while. Um, but then I think there was like a law that said you can't, doctors can't mm. give it out anymore. Um, in like the doses that they were. And, and so, um, yeah, I had to just be like, oh, it's just for my flights and like, you know, give mm. like, oh, it's just like, I'm going on a trip. I just need it. But somehow that's still give me 50 like <laughs> pills. And it's just like, same. okay. Um, same. Yeah. Not only do I totally relate, but during this period when I was doing this, I did find it a little bit difficult to actually do meaningful work yet you did yeah and I'm so curious how that happened between and like what that balance was between self-medicating with things that numb you yet having the ability and strength to feel enough to create all of this powerful work well it's funny you say that because I wasn't creating powerful work in 2016 um, when I got to LA I didn't make any art that entire year. Um, I was only doing commercials and that was fine. That was easy. I could do commercials. I could <laughs> use that part of my brain. Didn't require emotions. Um, right, right. So it wasn't until I got sober in October, November, December at the end of the year um, that I started writing for Arabella, uh, which came out in 2017. And I'd written the entire series on a plane um, leaving Art Basel to New York. Um, and two hours, Sarah. Yeah, <laughs> it was That's in like December. Nothing. I know it was in December. Um, and, and then in January, I continued to write it. And then I found the talent that I wanted to work with and I presented her 
the concepts and the writing and the little shitty sketches of the, of my like vision. And we ended up shooting it. And, um, and then, you know, I released, I created it, I released it. And, and that was the first series that meant something to me, um, in like, in, in what felt like a year at that point. Um, wow. But yeah, there was no, there was no creating <laughs> in, in between. Like I did Summer Without a Pool 2 earlier that year. I think I released it in June. Um, but I was going through an extreme heartbreak slash like feeling like I'd been completely fucked over by this guy at the time. Um, and like, heart, I think heartbreak overpowers any kind of numbness, even if you're taking the drugs. And I was, and I was really taking them. And after that, I just became a shell of a human and it became, I was, it was like the worst headspace I'd ever been in my life until this, until this day. Um, and that's, I think it was at that moment I decided like, oh, well, this isn't working for me. I can't function. And so that's when mm-hmm. the, when the journey began. <laughs> so you've been open about your anxiety and you said so many of the reasons why you numbed was because of you know, the constant voices in your head and, and just the, the feeling of anxiety, which is really paralyzing. Yeah. In what capacity does your anxiety manifest? And when it does get bad, what does it look like? Um, uh, what capacity does it manifest? I mean, I am so easily triggered. Um, it, my anxiety, my number one trigger for it is feeling unsafe. So mm. if I, for instance, I just moved into this yeah. house uh it's a new space for me um i'm not aware of my surroundings i don't know who my neighbors are um i haven't lived alone in a house in four years because i was in an apartment before this with 24-hour security and so my my biggest trigger is feeling like i'm in danger anxiety stems from thinking you're in danger so it's like it's, it's very it sounds very simple but um what happens is I'll hear a noise in this house that I'm not familiar with. I feel like I'm about to get murdered. I, mm-hmm. <laughs> I, um, that's on a physical level. Uh, I send a text to someone and I realize I didn't articulate myself the way I wanted to. Um, and they might perceive it wrong or they don't respond mm-hmm. immediately. So mm-hmm. I suddenly feel like I'm in danger because I'm in danger of being misinterpreted and attacked mm-hmm. or verbally abused. That's like a, on a, on a, on a text conversation level. Um, my anxiety could be stimulated from walking down the road and being followed by a car, which actually happened to me yesterday. Um, oh my God. And having like a man just like yell things at me and like literally follow me down a street for like five minutes. Terrifying. I'm so sorry. Like things like that are more, I mean, that's like, but anything that kind of, makes me feel like I'm in danger and I'm, I'm suddenly unsafe. Like I'm anxious and these things can happen at any moment, right? Any Mm -hmm. moment. Um, and so it's, it's a constant battle because like I, I do find myself in fight or flight mode more often than I'd like to be. And, you know, and, but then also like in freeze mode too. And so like, if I'm in bed and I hear Mm -hmm. a sound, I don't get up and like, such it and like with a fucking knife or a, yeah. a weapon I like stay yeah. in bed and I'm just like all right I guess they're coming for me 
Like, I'm just like, I'm like, oh, it's like, I forgot that I can actually like defend myself. I can call the police. I can call my boyfriend. Like, there's so many things you can do to defuse the situation from hearing like a footstep. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, I create, I'm the same though. I create all these stories in my head and, you know, I, I, and I just wish like it didn't have to be this way, but anxiety is a coping mechanism at the end of the day. And it's what helped me survive my traumas as a kid. And so mm. I, as much as I am, you know, I, as much as I wish it would go away, it's also like what helped me survive. So I can't be mad at it. I just have to learn to like diffuse situations a lot easier. And that's something that I still am working with my therapist with. How did your anxiety help you when you were a kid? It, it numbed me from experiencing the pain, if that makes sense. So like, yeah. you know, I, I was sexually abused from for like a huge portion of my childhood. Um, and I knew I was in danger. I knew I felt unsafe. Um, but I was able to numb myself in those moments and freeze and completely leave my body in order to mm. survive the things that were happening to me. And had I not had that natural response, I would have suffered a whole lot more. If that makes sense, I would have felt the pain that came with that, the pain with being violated. Mm -hmm. Um, but my, my response was to just like leave my body. And that obviously mm -hmm. made me a very apathetic adult, wasn't in touch with my emotions until I started doing therapy. Um, and, but yeah, it, it's what helped me survive. So it's like, you do still feel pain. You just feel like anxiety and anxiety is painful as fuck. So painful. But it's also a protection. It's a protection <laughs> from actually feeling what's going on underneath. And what's going on underneath is so much worse, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's why we do numb ourselves. That's why we do take drugs or whatever. <laughs> like when we, because yeah. like, we don't want to deal with it because what's happening is in our heads, like it's just not worth going through that process of like feeling it all. And then when you repress it for 20 or so fucking years and then you finally decide, okay, I'm going to not take drugs. I'm going to start therapy. I'm going to deal with it all. Then you like, that's when, that's when it really fucking hurts. And yeah, yeah. That's when you really, really experience the pain and that pain never leaves until you give it permission to. And yeah. it took, it, it took me years and there's still a lot of work to be done. But like, I just like, I feel like people who are listening, like it is so worth doing the work. And going through yes. that pain because like whatever you've repressed, you've already survived. And I think people forget that. But would you rather just like exist and feel nothing or exist knowing what you're repressing, go through those emotions, feel it all so you can eventually feel lighter and free of it all, right? Because totally. I can tell you like four years of therapy, I feel, I feel so much lighter. Like I, I can talk about things so much more freely and like, yeah, it's just, it's, it feels, it feels worth it. And you'll definitely reach low lows 1000%. It's almost guaranteed, but like, but like you just push through, you keep going and, and it starts to eventually feel lighter. It doesn't go away, but it feels lighter. And I think that's important. This is the question we ask every guest. What drives you? So 
I, <laughs> I'm going to say, um, giving myself a voice and being able to tell my story and being aware of it and being able to be open about it. I think, yeah, my driving factor is my own existence and, and yeah, just being able to make sense of it all through art and storytelling. That, my friends, was Sarah Baba. Isn't she a gem? If you haven't already seen her work, you can follow her on Instagram at Sarah Baba. And you can follow me at Gillian Sagansky. As always, I'd love to hear what you think of this episode. So please DM me with comments, questions, concerns, all the things. I'm going to go freak out that there's only one episode left of this season. Ah! Then maybe eat a slice of pizza in the bathtub if I'm feeling particularly feisty. Until next time.